1: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of
0: Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary. Selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection. From Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org. Good morning, it's 8.30. I'm Paul Boger filling in for Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Congress passes a stopgap spending bill to keep the government running, then promoting racial healing in troubled times.
2: Our challenge from Mission Mississippi and from a Christian perspective is that what is the biblical perspective of race? I like to look at it like, what is the biblical perspective on color, on culture, and on class? Because when you start diving into this thing, it takes in a lot of stuff.
0: Later, turning community health center visits into Medicaid savings and the generational memory of lynching in our book club, That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Despite clashes over a temporary government spending plan, members of Mississippi's congressional delegation have voted to avoid a government shutdown. MPB's Desiree Frazier reports.
3: The U.S. House and Senate have passed a short-term federal spending bill referred to as a continuing resolution. The measure was initially voted down because Democrats wanted funding for Flint, Michigan's lead water crisis included. To end the gridlock, lawmakers added Flint to a water resources bill in the House, despite Flint's inclusion in a bill already passed by the Senate. Democratic Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson says lawmakers are eager to avoid a government shutdown.
2: We went through it a few years ago and it was traumatic to say the least. And uh, we are sent here to do a job and that job is to make government work. So from all indications is we will have a continuing resolution uh, passed.
3: Republican Mississippi Congressman Greg Harper says the plan will fund the government through December 9th
0: come back after the election, and then we will, between now and and early December, for the length of this continuing resolution to fund the government, there will be some negotiations and some appropriations work to pass various funding of different parts of the government and do as much there as we can.
3: The short-term spending plan includes funding for Zika, military construction, and veteran services, issues important to Mississippians. Desiree Frazier, MPB News.
0: In other news, Mississippi faith leaders are joining together to promote the need for racial healing today and for the next generation. This is the focus of Mission Mississippi, the nonprofit group devoted to using the Christian message to bring races together. Nettie Winters is the president of Mission Mississippi, and John Hugh Tate is the pastor of Bellwether Church in Jackson. They speak with MPP's Karen Brown about the need for racial healing in the time where police killings of black men across the country has helped deepen a divide and about Mission Mississippi's racial reconciliation celebration starting this morning at 9 at the Jackson Convention Complex.
2: The things that we see happening in our society, I would call them uh, results or symptoms of of racism. Uh, They're not the cause of it. This is the pain and the issues and things that comes out of racism. Because we have not properly dealt with our history and racism and all of those things, Uh, over the past 240 years, uh, these things happen. Does this
1: mean that racism is more prevalent today or it's just more out in the open?
2: I think we have the freedom today to act out in whatever way we think we're big enough to act out, whether it has to do with racism or other issues in life, as you see, you know. And so... I believe that what we're seeing today is a result of us not appropriately dealing with the issues of racism, slavery, discrimination, all of those things that have separated us and divided us in the past. If, you know, uh, this is, I don't want to say the fruit of it, but this is the results of it. I don't, that's what happens when you don't treat the right things in your body, as, if I describe this as a, a health issue you don't probably treat diabetes or or sugar or those things, what happens as a result is gangrene. At some point, you start deteriorating. You start taking part by part of the loose. And so when you, you must appropriately deal with it. Because Mississippi is about dealing with it from a spiritual standpoint, and we think that's the answer.
1: Pastor Tate, surely you've heard what I've heard in the national conversation that you have to take sides. You're If you're pro-African American, then you're anti-police. If you uh, support Black Lives Matter, then you're anti-American or something else. I mean, there's an either or situation set up. Do you agree with that? And, and how do you address it?
4: Well, I don't agree that you have to take sides. And, and first off, you know, I'm a, I'm a white Christian pastor. Uh, so I try to be on the side of Jesus as best as I can. Uh, but I also come from a perspective of a white family and generally white society, what I was raised in. And I do think that this, this present nas- national situation, it, it is a result, and things are much more out in the open now. I mean, I, it's hard to say whether we are more racist now than we have been in the 1950s or 60s or hundreds of years earlier. I mean, racism is a sin issue that's always been with us. I do think now people are, from the results of, of things that they have lived through, are more open. And I know for me personally, I am trying to listen more. I mean, whenever someone is hurting, it's a Jesus issue. And there are many people across the nation and in our state and in communities that are hurting. And so I do believe that this is a God moment where we make a mistake if we say we are taking sides on this thing. And it's a God moment for the church to really confront. And again, I'm speaking for me personally where I'm I'm confronting times where I've said, you know, I'm not racist at all. I've got black friends, a few, uh, or, uh, you know, I, I can empathize to a degree, but I haven't lived through Black Americans have lived through. So, what I can do right now is really try to listen uh, and, and be as, as empathetic as, as possible. And I would be very open. I mean, we're, I think we're all limping along in this together. I applaud Nettie and Mission Mississippi because they have been the pace setters in this for now 15 years. Well, 20, I mean, Mission Mississippi, yeah. 20, so, 20 um, you know, and, and I hope people will now look to them more uh, with the conference uh, with the celebration today. Uh, to see that they, they have set the pace for this.
1: Mr. Winters, do you think that the um, the mood in the country is perpetuated in some part by this presidential election, that it's all come to a head? Part of the
2: problem is that we look to individuals or persons to decide who's at fault. And I don't think, from my perspective, we ought to allow the presidential race or candidates or whatever it is to stir up something in me that otherwise would not be stirred up. So I think uh, the presidential race or any other activities going on in our country today is an excuse.
1: So it's an individual decision. Absolutely. How you approach.
2: You know, help me understand the results of a police shooting a person in this case in charlotte or some other place in the united states help me understand how in this particular i think this was in charlotte where one of the protesters was they were protesting one of the protesters got shot by somebody that was protesting yes i don't really understand how that helps demonstrate what it is that you whatever you're demonstrating about the police shooting somebody we turn around and shoot each other I i don't i don't get that and so when we listen to all these voices there's a lot of voices out there and christians are all over the place because they are not looking to the thing that we have in common, which is Jesus. And so our challenge from Mission Mississippi and from a Christian perspective is that what is the biblical perspective of race? I like to look at it like what is the biblical perspective on color, on culture, and on class? Because when you start diving into this thing— it, it, it takes in a lot of stuff. As John Hughes said, you know, he was raised this way, I was raised this way. And so when you start dealing into this culture thing and this this, this class thing and this color thing, you got all kind of tentacles and things. And Miss Mississippi is saying, hey, we're going to deal with the race issue here in the Christian community because there's so many pink elephants, if I can say so, that's in the room. And, you know, and all these voices out there about what lives matter. Lives in the womb matter. Lives, black lives matter. So, you know, the blue lives matter. So, you know, what well, we have to keep keep in, in perspective here that all lives are valuable. All lives have value. What's in the wound or whether it's blue or black or whatever it is, all lives have value. And when a subset of all those lives that all lives matter, then you got these subsets. And when a subset of all lives matter come out, and and, they, and, and I believe they come away from God's standing and God perspective, they become – uh, something within themselves, which resulted from my perspective results in seeing And so we have to understand that all life is valuable. All life is precious. The biblical perspective says all lives matter. So how do we work together to move forward together and appreciate the equality and equity that all lives matter and that we move and make sure that all lives are valued equally and that by human beings, we don't devalue life that God has decided that's valuable. And so the, the challenge, how do, we, how do we get through this thing? We believe having conversation together, sitting down, talking together, as we're doing today. And that, you know, John says he want to listen. I think the greatest hindrance of any kind of relationship is that we lack the ability to listen. I walk into a room. Everybody and, wants to talk. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we think, you know, <laughs> one of the Bible quotes that I do, Jesus said to the folks, you think your many words and your minute talking is going to accomplish something. And so we all have that issue of wanting to talk. You know, in fact, the Bible tells us to slow to speak <laughs> and quick to listen. And uh, most people are not slow to speak, including myself. Especially you know, preachers. You, you know, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know. My wife is talking, and you know, I just can't wait for her to be quiet so I can tell how wrong she is. And I'm sure it works the other way with her. You know, she she's waiting she's waiting for me to be quiet so she can tell me really, really how wrong I am because she knows it. And so we go into these conversations to let the other person understand our perspective. And many times, we don't really care what the other person's perspective is. So Michigan, Mississippi, like today, Michigan, Mississippi is having a summit and where people can sit at the table together and hear answers from John And John can hear answers from Nettie, and we give each other an opportunity to process those answers and understand those answers. Whether or not we'll have a grip
4: on those answers is a whole different
2: discussion.
1: Let me ask you this. I mean, why is this called a celebration? Do we have things to celebrate in Mississippi? Yes, I
4: think so. I think Mississippi, in a great way, has led the way, partly because Mississippi's kind of been the black sheep of the nation in terms of being (laughs) blamed for all the... uh, being blamed for, for all the problems, and Mississippi has been forced to confront this issue sooner than the rest of the country. I will say this, you know, I worked for Mission Mississippi, it was 14 years ago uh, this this past summer. And I was in seminary, and I was interested in these issues, and they were already, again, leading the way and getting up off the ground. And one of my jobs was to interview different pastors around the state about where they saw us as the church in in race relations and I was looked back and I was fascinated I had one interview and I won't name the pastor but a very well-known pastor around the state and he was a white pastor and he said you know it was almost like why why are we having this conversation we're past this issue of race I talked to young people in, in the church today and they say we're past race this was 2002 and and I think a big issue is that we have put a Band-Aid on this wound uh, for years.
1: Nettie Winters is president of Mission Mississippi, and John Hugh Tate is pastor of Bellwether Church in Jackson. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank it's you. an honor to
0: be here. Mission Mississippi's racial reconciliation celebration starts this morning at 9 at the Jackson Convention Complex. Up next, turning community health center visits into Medicaid savings. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
5: Community Health Center is in Mississippi.
1: Support for Mississippi Public Broadcasting comes from the Delta Entrepreneurship Network. Hosting the Delta Challenge Pitch Competition September 29th at the University of Mississippi. Information and registration at dra.gov slash entrepreneur.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Paul Boger filling in for Karen Brown. Mississippians who visit community health centers for primary care often save Medicaid dollars down the line. That's according to a study to be published in November by the American Journal of Public Health. The authors analyzed Medicaid data in 13 states, including Mississippi, and found Medicaid patients who use community health centers make Medicaid claims less often than than those who don't. Janice Sherman is the CEO of the Mississippi Primary Health Care Association. She tells MPB's Karen Brown investments in community health centers lead to savings down the line.
5: Community health centers in Mississippi, like the 12 other states in this study, actually had lower total cost of care for patients than patients that are not seen by community health centers. It also reflected that the community health centers in Mississippi had lower hospital admissions and lower specialty care spending in this study.
1: How many community Uh, centers are there in Mississippi?
5: We have 190 sites among the 21 organizations. So there are 190 physical sites, clinic locations.
1: Is there fear that any of them will have to close?
5: No, we're we're not facing any of of that threat at the moment. You know, health centers are funded, and they are, you know, leveraging those federal funds to, to create some viability, and that's part of the role that, a membership association helps them to support, and that you know, we provide resources and support to assist them toward that end as well. But today, as we speak, health centers in Mississippi are are viable enough to, to be sustainable for a long time, and that's our hope.
1: Is there a dollar amount uh, attached to the savings by someone going to a health care center as opposed to private care?
5: There's not a dollar amount for the savings, actually. What what we generally say, and it's part of our, our national trend of data on another set of literature that says for every $1 of investment, the state and the feds get $3 back of their money. So the return on their investment is three to one. Um, and that's borne out in some other methodology that's out there. But, um, you know, that's a pretty common thread across our industry.
1: What's the percentage of Medicaid CHIP enrollees who are going to the clinics across the state? Uh, About 25
5: percent. 100,000 out of the 400 and some thousand. So one
1: out of four. Mm -hmm. And the others are going to hospitals, they're going to private physicians. What are most of them doing?
5: I'm not really sure about that, Karen, uh, because it's, you know, their choice. But, you know, there are hospitals that have outpatient clinics as well. There, there are other payers that, other providers that take Medicaid as well. You know, even university outpatient settings take Medicaid patients and other uh, private physicians take Medicaid patients. So they're probably dispersed against a, a mixed use, as the, the study pointed to other outpatient clinics. And some of those can be rural health clinics that are not federally qualified health centers. Some can be outpatient, private, hospital outpatient, uh, a number of those.
1: I'm sure there must be a perception, at least among some of the uh, the CHIP Medicaid enrollees, that uh, going to a private physician might offer better care than going to a clinic that serves a larger group of people. Any truth to that?
5: Well, I don't agree with that because I've actually been a patient as well as an administrator of a community health center. So, you know, it wouldn't be my truth. It may be someone else's. There's a perception amongst communities that's pretty local you know there's some local communities where if a community health center is there and it sort of has been an anchor in that town and the people that are employed there live there and you know they sort of built you know their um community around that particular site you know it's going to vary so perceptions are are i'm sure vary just as much across this state and across the nation but my perception is that Quality of care provided by community health centers, since I've been a patient myself, uh, is second to none.
1: Is there a focus at the community centers of prevention of maintenance that would prevent more serious problems physically? Sure. And- and oh,
5: absolutely.
1: You know, even though
5: even though you know, by the time most patients get to community health centers, because they've basically you know not accessed traditional care. Um, you know, we get a lot of folks that have chronic conditions, but, you know, the immediate charge to us is to change those outcomes for people who haven't traditionally accessed care. So if we get patients with, you know, chronic diabetes who walks in, immediately there's a plan that says, you know, you're going to have to do some things to, to partner in better outcomes. We won't achieve them independently of, you know, patients really being engaged and taking a role
1: in prevention. Janice Sherman is CEO of Mississippi Primary Health Care Association. Janice, thank you so much. Thank you, Karen.
0: Up next, the generational memory of lynching in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
6: Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB
0: Think Radio. For generations, African-Americans in the Jim Crow South grew up with lynching as a constant threat. Since the practice was eradicated, succeeding generations have wrestled with the memory. In his new book, Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory, Carlos K. Hill tackles the ways lynching is remembered by African-Americans. He tells MPB's Karen Brown, the shared memory of lynching is powerful. When scholars talk about
6: memory, it's very different Than how individuals or lay people talk about memory when scholars talk about memory they talk about shared understandings of the past that are transmitted through either oral history or through popular culture in the case of my book i'm talking about how african americans have created shared understandings of the history of lynching african americans who may have had a relative or a loved one being killed by a mob, those stories in many ways are, are stories that are shared by not just a group of families, but stories that are shared by um, a, a large swath of African American people. But what I do, try to do as a scholar is to analyze and read all those stories and see the, uh, the similarities that run between those stories. And and so on that basis, I can talk about a common memory or a shared memory of the history of lynching.
1: You know, the definition of lynching isn't necessarily death by hanging. It's a mob killing someone who has not had the benefit of a trial. Mm -hmm. So why is hanging or why was hanging the predominant form of lynching? Was it a more violent image, trying to send a message?
6: Our popular perception of lynching is, you know, death by hanging, because when we encounter lynching, we typically encounter it through photographs of lynching, of the most heinous lynchings. And so in the public perception, lynching is death by hanging. And as you said, a lynching in its essence is the denial of due process of law, right? It doesn't really matter how the individual was executed or killed. Many lynch victims were not hung. Many lynch victims were shot to death, burned to death. Many lynch victims were even in the earlier period, you know, before the 20th century, were tarred and feathered. And so lynching doesn't necessarily connote death by hanging but in the popular imagination because of lynching photographs we typically many people typically associate those two things
1: do you know how many people is there any idea how many people how many African Americans were hung in this country
6: scholars of lynching don't have an exact figure of how many black Americans or even Americans were lynched but we do have good estimates Most scholars will argue more than 3,000 African-Americans, somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 African-Americans were lynched between, say, 1880 and 1960.
1: Is there lynching or some form of it still possible and even in evidence today?
6: In America, I would say that lynching ceased to be a social phenomenon at the latest in the 1940s. Um, however, there there are some loud voices in American society that's that's trying to suggest that the police shootings of unarmed African Americans are either lynchings or reminiscent of lynchings. And the the basis for the people who are saying that they are lynchings they say that when police shoot an unarmed person, they're effectively denying them due process of law. They're effectively violating their civil rights, when an unarmed and non-threatening person is shot and killed by police. And the reason why this group makes this leap is because we haven't really healed, right, from the history of lynching. Maybe even the wounds are still open. From a scholarly perspective, definitely these are not lynchings. These phenomenons are not one and the same. Lynchings were were meant to terrorize. Uh, These police shootings are not meant to terrorize the black communities. However, the effect of these shootings do terrorize black communities. But those distinctions need to be made, because if we get to the point where we call these lynchings, I think we're doing a disservice to the thousands of, of African Americans who died at the hands of lynch mobs in the teens, 20s and 30s.
1: Carlos Cahill is the author of Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. Carlos, thank you very much for being with us.
0: Thank you for having me. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Creature Comforts, MPB Season Pass, and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. It's easy. I'm Paul Boger, in for Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary. Selections from the Roy R. Newberger Collection, from Georgia O'Keefe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org.
1: It's Marketplace Tech for this Thursday.